chapter 12, The Jungle That's Not in the Guidebooks. Mazatlan is almost on the Tropic of Cancer, and at Cape San Lucas, we noticed a marked change in the vegetation. The sparse growths of the north gave way to the prodigal verdure of the south. We entered the tropics with the keenest anticipation. The past months had worked wonders in our physical condition. Despite our loss in weight due to the long, hard hours at the paddles under a blistering sun and the slim rations, we were in perfect health. Our muscles were hard and tireless, and there was a distinct difference in our sensory and mental reactions. Our hearing had become so acute that the snapping of a twig would bring us out of a sound sleep whereas at home an alarm clock had failed to waken us. Constant scanning of the horizon had exercised our eye muscles and improved our sight. We had developed a precision in the coordination of our eyes and mind that we particularly noticed. They worked in unison. We saw instantly the entire picture of anything with a minuteness of detail which at first surprised us. Our sense of smell improved. In the city, the confusion of smells makes it impossible to distinguish any one odor clearly, but in the clean air we could soon differentiate between the scents of animals and discover a fresh water hole a mile away, if the wind was right. Our sense of taste was sharpened also, possibly due to the lack of complicated seasonings. The various sea foods of our daily diet took on decidedly different flavors. After leaving Mazatlan, we paddled south through the lagoon country, thoroughly enjoying the sight of the lush green vegetation after the long sojourn along the desert coast. We passed fields of sugarcane, the thatched roofs of native villages, and dense tropic jungle. There was a price to pay for all this beauty, though. Thousands of mosquitoes swarmed round us, tiny, almost invisible gnats called chehenes stung us, leaving red welts on our skins. The first night out of Mazatlan, our first night in the jungle, we began to discover what these pests can do to you. About midnight, we were routed out of a sound sleep to discover that we were not alone. Scrambling out of the tent, we fanned the embers of the fire into flame and proceeded to investigate. A colony of ants had found a tiny hole in the bottom of the tent and had moved in bag and baggage, hundreds of them. In the morning we crawled out of the tent to be greeted by clouds of assorted insects. We built a smudge fire and tried to hide behind the barricade of smoke. No use. We could keep out the bombers, but the pursuit ships didn't mind the smoke screen a bit. Furthermore, it in no way discouraged the ants, who seemed to prefer their meat seasoned with smoke. We decided that we'd rather brave the perils of the deep, so while Ginger made breakfast, I went to collect coconuts to take with us. The refreshing milk would quench our thirst as we paddled under a blazing sun. I picked up my bolo knife and started to hack my way through the undergrowth towards the palms. The knife, with its twelve-inch blade, was much handier round camp than an axe, but for cutting through tropical underbrush it was little good. Each time that I slashed at the branches, 
I was showered with bugs. Finally, I dropped the knife and frantically pawed with both hands at my neck. I must have looked funny, for Ginger, watching me, laughed. Then I grabbed my foot, fighting the bugs. I had overlooked the knife and had stepped on it, cutting a tiny slice out of my heel. In the meantime, Ginger's laughter had turned to ejaculations of horror. I rushed over to the campfire, where she stood as though made of stone. What's the matter? Look! She answered, pointing to the ground. Two scorpions were crawling out of the dead wood she had just placed on the fire. Grab a stick and kill them, I said crossly as I limped off. I was going to climb a tree and get those coconuts if it killed me. I reached a tree and started up. When my legs and stomach began to burn, I looked down and saw that the bowl of the tree was covered with ants. Then I was mad. Everything seemed to be conspiring to thwart me in getting those nuts. To cap it all, when I reached the top, I discovered that in my excitement I had failed to bring the knife. Exasperated at my stupidity, I began wrenching the nuts off with my hands. But as I reached for a particularly large cluster, I almost fell out of the tree in horror. A great hairy tarantula was crawling down the bowl and heading straight for me. I started going places. The palm's spikes pointed upwards, and I wanted to go in the opposite direction fast. The result was a massacre. I must have looked a pretty sight as I limped into camp, covered with scratches, cuts, dirt, and bugs. The only thing I didn't bring was the tarantula. For the love of Mike, who's been clawing you? Ginger demanded. I told my story. Well, she said as she proceeded to disinfect my wounds, it's evident that the tarantula had the better punch. While we sat eating breakfast in the smudge which burnt our eyes, though the bugs just loved it, I said, it seems that we're just babes in the wood after all. We've got a lot to learn. Let's pack up and get out of here. So we beat an inglorious retreat from what we had once regarded as our promised land. Paddling down a tropic lagoon, we discovered was quite different from paddling down the coast. Here the wind was shut off and not a breath of air stirred. The humidity, coupled with a sun that almost seared our toughened skins, soon had us stewing. We were bathed in perspiration and round our necks swarmed clouds of mosquitoes. Where were our storybook tropics? I began to suspect that their, own, their most enthusiastic delineators had limbed their charms from an air-conditioned flat in Manhattan. As we paddled along, we were both preoccupied with the problems presented by this new challenge to our ingenuity. The mosquitoes and chehenes were greatest in number at sunrise and sunset. We decided to circumvent them by having our supper early, retiring to the tent until after sundown when their numbers decreased, and by staying in bed until after sunrise. The problem of ants and other crawlers could be met could we could meet by building a brush fire over the proposed campsite and then scraping the ashes into a ring round it. We doubted that even the toughest ant would run the gauntlet of hot ashes. That night we put our new system into effect. The bugs were eliminated. The night was so hot, however, that even without the bugs to annoy us, it was almost impossible to sleep. It was like an oven inside the sleeping bag, so we slept on top of it. The canvas was soon wet with sweat. I had just dozed off when a rustling sound outside the tent brought me to my feet. What do you hear? Ginger whispered. That's what I'm going to find out, I whispered back as I unzipped the tent flap. Just as I stepped outside, something grabbed my foot. 
I jumped about two feet in the two feet in the air to land on something else that crunched as I hit it. One more leap found me beside the remnants of the fire, whose hot ashes burnt the soles of my feet. Close the tent and stand by with the gun. We're invaded, I yelled. Invaded by what? I don't know, but they look like scorpions or spiders. The tent was zipped shut in a hurry, for Ginger, braver than most people about so many things, has a mortal fear of spiders, no matter how small or harmless. Not having nerve enough to reach for the wood pile, I took the crossbar off the fireplace to use as fuel. Then, when I had fanned the coals to flame, I looked round. The camp was literally alive with strange creatures whose great orange bodies were carried on blue legs. I looked at them a full minute before I could identify them. Giant land crabs, quite harmless but often present at night. When we awoke at daylight, there was not a crab in sight. At breakfast, we loaded the canoe and headed south. Coming to a small inlet, we stopped to inspect it and found its shallow water full of stingrays, whose long tails were armed with barbs that could inflict a nasty wound on the feet of the unwary. In shoal water, we found a great many shrimps and prawns, which we used for bait to catch a large mess of fish for our lunch. We tied them over the stern of the canoe, trailing them behind in the water to keep them fresh, and then went on down the lagoon. There was a distinct thrill in paddling along the quiet blue water, listening to the sounds of jungle life that went on round us. Stately herons fished in the shallows. Silvery cascades of spray hung an instant in the still air in the wake of leaping fish. Overhead parrots bustled past in pairs. An odd thing, but we never saw a single parrot, always in pairs or even numbered groups. As we gazed about us at this new world of sound and life and movement, the canoe stopped with a jerk and then moving, moved rapidly backward. Turning hastily round, we saw that a large shark had tried to get himself an unearned meal by stealing the fish trailing astern. I grabbed the killing lance and gave him a vicious jab in the gills, expecting him to loose his hold and swim off, but he refused. He hung on to the fish, turning over and over. Each time his white belly came up, I jabbed him again, literally cutting him to pieces. He died at last, hanging on to our fish. With my sheath knife, I cut the fish off just above his jaws. There was not enough for a meal. We could well imagine what it would mean to have one of those killers grab a man's leg. That night, by the light of the campfire, I wrote in my diary, the animalitos are insects, as insects are called by the natives, are with us again tonight. Ants, land crabs, chehenes, and many other whose names we do not know, thousands of them are crawling or flying round, each one of them intent on getting a meal. Some of them subsist on foliage, some of them, like the ants, are scavengers, Others are parasites and bloodsuckers. We must study and understand this complexity of life if we are to survive. We had no adequate comprehension of its extravagant abundance or its exceeding cheapness in this land. The country is beautiful, but we do not understand it and are afraid to explore it on foot. We only see what faces the lagoon and have not yet ventured ten feet into the undergrowth. Tonight we could find no cleared sp spot to set up camp so we undertook to clear a site. The first log we moved unearthed a nest of scorpions. Then a centipede crawled over Ginger's foot. Ants dropped from the tangled foliage above, and ants crawled out from the decayed humus below. 
We are both a mass of welts from insect bites, and as I write this, I'm still being bitten. Off in the jungle today, we could see the homes of some of these minute jungle folk, great mud balls built by the Komehin, which is similar to our termite, the stately castles of the cutter ant, excuse me, and the brush-covered mansions of other intelligent and voracious insects whose acquaintance we have not yet made. It's going to be a tremendous task to know these tiny creatures, their method of existence, their likes and dislikes, and above all, to learn how to avoid them as we tramp through the undergrowth. I'm wondering as I write just how many of the authors whose jungle stories I used to read ever saw the jungle. If so, why did they so flagrantly omit the bugs? The next day we paddled on down the lagoon, and the day after arrived at Boca Tintejo, which opens into the ocean. It was a difficult channel to negotiate, but our first taste of the jungle had not been too attractive, and we were glad to face the open sea. To acclimatize ourselves gradually to the humid tropic heat, we spent the following fortnight in leisurely sailing down the coast, most of the time close inshore, until we arrived at Banderas Bay, where we decided to make camp on the beautiful north shore between the bay's blue waters and the jungle. While we were busy setting up camp, we saw three natives coming down the beach, swinging long machetes. In appearance, they were strikingly different from any natives we had yet seen. They were dressed in loose pajama-like pants, with the sides crossed over and tied in back, and the legs tightly bound at the ankles, a loose slip-on shirt was held in place by a broad, bright sash knotted at the side. They wore flat-crowned hats with broad brims set squarely on their heads, and on their feet heavy huaraches, with the heel and toe built up like a Chinese shoe. A pouch hanging from the sash completed their costume. Their features were oriental, with round faces, high cheekbones, flat, broad noses, and slightly uh, slanted eyes. They came walking into camp with friendly gesture and asked us who we were, where we were going, and where we were from. I told them that we were going to Panama. They had never heard of Panama, or in fact any place outside the limits of their own country. I examined one of their machetes a beautiful weapon with a blade about three and a half feet long, its bone handle carved into a serpent. Then I handed my bolo knife to one native and inquired what he thought about that kind of a knife in the jungle. It won't do, he answered. It's too short. How would he like to do a little trading? I suggested. We had discarded so much of our extra equipment that we had little left to dicker with except the fish hooks and needles that we always carried. I laid out an assortment of them, and we started bartering. The natives were not too impressed. Finally, Ginger said, I've been putting one over on you. I have an extra lighter hidden away in my ditty bag. Perhaps we can trade that. She got out the shiny lighter, filled it with some of our remaining gasoline, and showed them how it worked. This turned the trick. The machete was ours. They stayed with us until dark, asking many questions and exhibiting great curiosity over our equipment. They were huicholes, they told us, and lived near the Pinguinto, the Piguinto River. 
Then we had our turn asking questions, and we asked innumerable ones, particularly about the insects. We took notes as they talked. When they came to a recital of an insect that crawled in under the toenails to lay its eggs, I held up my foot. We had noticed peculiar wart-like protuberances between our toes and nails. The natives gave one look. Nigua, nigua, they said, and one man reached for his machete. What are you going to do with that? I asked. Cut out the nigua, of course. Not with that machete, you aren't, I replied, hastily withdrawing my extended foot. If there's any cutting to be done, I'll do it. You just show me how. I went over to the first aid kit and got out the surgeon's knife, whose shiny blade filled them with admiration. As I took it out of its oiled wrappings, I explained to them that it was a knife made especially for cutting flesh. Picking out a large lump on the side of my toe, I carefully followed instructions and cut the top off. There under the skin lay revealed there under the skin lay revealed a round white sack about the size of a pea. The natives said that it must be removed without breaking. It was full of eggs. Using the tweezers, I worked the sack loose and pulled it out. Ginger daubed the big hole with iodine. Are there any more animalitos that make sores? I asked. See, si, a native answered. There is one much worse whose name is Talaje, a little gray one who, when he bites, leaves a blister. Round that blister, a purple bruise forms. If you are very careful and do not break the blister, it will heal before very long. But if you break the blister, it makes an open running sore that takes a very long time to heal. Sometimes people bitten by talajes die. We spent the evening removing niguas, and next day limped around camp on pretty sore feet. The following day, we were able to sail over to the little village of Vallarta. The village, built on a hill, seems to be standing on end as you approach it from the sea. We landed on its pebbly beach, and a crowd of husky natives, as usual, immediately took hold of the vagabunda. We always had a difficult time explaining to natives that the canoe could not be dragged up on the beach as could one of their heavy dugouts, but once they got the idea, they were always very careful. The port captain soon appeared and examined our papers. When we told him that we were going to Panama, his face took on a great, a look of great concern. This is a very bad time of the year, he said, for the rainy season starts in about two weeks. No small boats travel along this coast during the stormy season, and I, as port captain, cannot permit you to put out to sea. I began to argue that there surely must be some calm days between storms. During the rainy weather, we could camp on the beach. But he shook his head, Senor, he said. These squalls come up with great violence, and suddenly... You have no warning. It is best not to attempt to travel at all. Even our canoes do not venture out during this season. Ginger turned to me and said in English, They seem to have a deep-rooted respect for these rainy seasons. You'd better listen. I tried to. I then tried to persuade him by promising that if he would clear the ship, we would go down the coast a little way and camp there. He also refused to listen to that argument. Senor, I have told you that you cannot go. This section of the coast is very bad. There is nothing but the jungle, and in it are tigers. There are no people, for even the natives go to higher ground at this season. You had better make up your mind to stay with us until after the rains. But we have no money, I protested. Here we cannot eat. Down the coast we can hunt and fish. He was adamant. Look, pointing to the overcast horizon, there is the forerunner of the rains. We were in despair. We couldn't leave the port without permission. 
and there was no way to eat if we were forced to remain. Finally, in my most eloquent Spanish, I explained our predicament. Would he let us go not farther than one week's distance from Vallarta if I solemnly promised we were we would stay there during the entire rainy season? Wearily, he shrugged an assent. Very well, it seemed to say. Let these foolish gringos go to their destruction. I've done my best. And he had. We made the rounds of the few native stores, trading fish hooks for some things that we needed. Again, we loaded the canoe and started down along the coast, sailing close to the shore. This was one of the most spectacular and beautiful sections of coast that we had cruised along since leaving the Gulf of California. High hills made an amphitheater of the blue and brown waters of Banderas Bay. Patches of red water dotted its expanse. Little streams rushing out of the jungle emptied into it. Most astonishing, however, were the snakes swimming everywhere. Towards sundown, we came to the mouth of the Ilapo River. As we pulled towards shore, we saw that the water was full of these snakes, bright green, with yellowish-orange bellies. In places, they were knotted up in bunches. I offered up a prayer of gratitude that there was no heavy surf here, for the vagabunda's prow seemed to cleave a passage through snakes. My thankfulness was a bit premature. Just then a small wave caught us on the stern. The canoe skidded sideways, and for no particular reason, tipped us out into the nicest collection of snakes and stinging jellyfish you ever saw. We swam to shore so fast that we hardly got wet, and turned round to see what kind of mixture we had just come to we had come through just in time to see the wind carry the canoe and all that we owned rapidly down the beach. I started after it, willing to risk anything to retain our sole earthly possession, and retrieved it at the cost of a few stings from the jellyfish. While Ginger prepared the supper, I went out into the water and captured a snake to examine it. Instead of the fangs we were led to expect, its mouth was lined with very small, sharp teeth. I don't think the bite is poisonous, but it is probably painful. A strange phenomenon occurs along this coast near the mouth of the Ilapo River. The bay at this point is extremely deep, over 100 fathoms, 600 feet, within a few hundred feet of the shore. The currents coming round Cape Corrientes seem to spill into this submarine canyon, and as they emerge, to bring with them many strange creatures from the ocean's greater depths. As we hiked along the beach, we found the carcasses of many odd marine animals, which we knew were not from surface waters. The Indians of this locality tell many weird tales of these marine monsters. The following morning we left at daylight for Cape Corrientes. While sailing through the calm waters of the bay, the water beside the canoe suddenly burst into spray. A great manta ray, at least twenty feet across, leapt into the air, turned over completely, and came down with a mighty splash that showered us with spume. A moment later it jumped again, but this time it was far enough away so that we could watch it without being frightened to death. One of these rays was caught in the gulf during our stay there. It weighed three tons. Except for the whales, they are the biggest marine creatures in these waters. As we rounded the high cliffs of the Cape, we saw a lighthouse halfway up the steep slope. This bit of man's handiwork made the untouched wilderness about it, if anything, more striking. We had started around the we had started to round the cape at 
about 11 a.m. The wind shifted to northeast, and while we seemed to be making good time, the strong currents that gave the Cape its name, corrientes means currents, bore against the wind and prevented us from making any headway. The wind grew stronger, and we had a hunch to go ashore and try again when it fell a bit. As we changed the course and started shoreward, our hearts sank, for instead of approaching, the shoreline receded. We were being carried out to sea. The tide, the current, and the wind were against us. By three o'clock that afternoon, we were ten miles off the Cape. Ginger sighed as she got out the dry rations and prepared the canoe for a night of rough sailing. In one respect, it was not as unpleasant as similar experiences further north had been, for the wind and spray were warm. The sky, with the exception of an occasional cloud bank, was not alarming, but the Cape Corrientes light flashed her eye at us from increasing distances, as though waving farewell. At twelve o'clock p.m., the wind shifted and blew from the northwest. We were running before riding high swells with a nasty cross-chop. It was my turn to be on watch, and Ginger had settled down in the cockpit to sleep. Every time she dozed off, however, we'd ship a sea that would slap her awake. At two o'clock in the morning, she said drowsily, "'There's something wiggling round in this cockpit,' then she yelled. "'It's a snake!' In her haste to get on deck, she almost overturned the canoe. I lifted my feet out of the cockpit in a hurry, too. The moon was hidden behind clouds, and it was pitch dark. The canoe bucked like a bronco, and Ginger perched on deck made it even more unwieldy. I hated to feel round with my bare hands, for by now I imagined that each wave breaking over us unloaded more snakes in the cockpit. There was a chance that the snake might be scooped up with the bailing can. I peered hopefully at each canful, but no snake rewarded my straining gaze. How long will this keep up, I wondered, as I tried to keep my equilibrium on the pitching deck and bail at the same time. At last a pale moon came through a rift in the clouds, and by its light I could see the elusive snake in the forward end of the cockpit. Reaching down, I grabbed by the end the tail was on, I hoped, and flung it overboard. At four o'clock a.m., the wind increased in strength, and we began to gain on the light. An ominous sound from shoreward made me scan the horizon. A white mass of foam came into view, and I hastily changed the course and headed out to sea again to avoid the tide rip that was churning the water. These tide rips are of frequent occurrence in this area, and it is best to give them a wide berth. The next morning the wind died, and we were left under a blazing sun far out to sea. We paddled all day in sweltering heat, the sweat stinging our eyes and streaming off our bodies. In the afternoon a little breeze came up, but it was gusty and did not do much good. At sundown we were still five miles offshore, and the breeze had increased. We were blown this way and that, without apparently making headway in any direction. The rain fell in torrents, thunder roared in our ears, and the heavens blazed with lightning. The corrientes light blinked off in the distance. At nine p.m. a gust of wind from the south struck us, jibbed the sail over, and almost upset the canoe. We reefed and double-reefed the sail, but it was impossible either to sail or paddle. 
We'd better ride this out with a sea anchor, I yelled, or we'll be swamped. Ginger made repeated attempts to open the cockpit and secure a line with which to rig the anchor, but each time she was defeated by the big seas that crashed down upon us, filling the cockpit and momentarily threatening to wash us overboard. These seas were not the mountainous, heavy, relatively slow-moving seas that we had battled in the north. They were short and high and came rushing down with the speed of bullets. We finally decided upon a desperate expedient. We would use our lifeline from around the gunnels to make the anchor. Without the line, a heavy sea might wash us overboard, and that meant almost certain death, but it was the only thing under the circumstances that we could do. Then, as suddenly as it had come up, the wind died down. We had just launched the sail overside, tied to the lifeline. Tensed and ready to meet the adversary, there was nothing to fight. We sat and looked at each other. It was like bracing yourself to bear the shock of an explosion and hearing only the faint fizzle of the fuse. This was a perfect example of the unpredictability of tropic weather. The chop went down soon after the wind abated, as the east grayed, we dragged in our waterlogged sail and hoisted it, and with a light breeze from the north helping us, we started shoreward. We had been blown out to sea for a considerable distance, and it was late in the afternoon before we were near enough to the coast to look for a place to land. Our muscles were cramped and tired from long confinement in the tiny cockpit, and the lack of food and rest had made us weary beyond words. Now there seemed no place to make a landing. As far as we could see, great seas were breaking everywhere upon the beaches, we carefully watched the breakers, hoping to observe a lull. There was none. It's no use waiting, I said. We've got to head in and take a chance. Wedge yourself in the cockpit so that if we bounce round, you won't be thrown out. If we do spill, go out the seaward side so the canoe won't hit you on the head as it did last time. Ginger shivered and turned a white face towards me. Afraid? I asked. No, she answered. "'But I'm tired, and I don't know whether I have strength enough "'to paddle through those big breakers.' "'We paddled in close to where the seas were breaking "'and followed on the heels of a breaker that had just crashed, "'digging in with the paddles for all we were worth. "'Then we got one of the major surprises of the entire trip, "'as quietly as though we were landing on the shore of a lake. "'The vagabunda ground her nose in the sand and stopped. "'We looked at each other in amazement. "'Ginger crawled up on the bow of the canoe and stepped to the beach, "'where she sat down suddenly.' "'How did that happen?' she asked, still unbelieving. "'We set up camp. "'Then while Ginger started the cooking fire, I took both guns, "'Ginger's automatic, in case I should sight small game, "'and the Luger, in the event of a tiger, and my new machete, "'and hacked my way towards a group of palms I had seen from the sea. "'Cutting through the last string of brush to the palm grove, "'I came upon a beautiful blue lagoon. "'I gazed in wonder.' Tired and hungry as I was, I forgot everything else for the moment. This was the promised land. A little freshwater stream ran into the lagoon, and across it tall cocoa palms lined a white sand beach. Ducks floated in the water. Great blue herons, snowy egrets, sandpipers, and shorebirds were everywhere. Parrots and other birds with gorgeous plumage, whose names I did not know, flew overhead. Fish made rainbow arcs of color as they leapt and splashed. It was a scene whose beauty made me doubt the evidence of my own eyes. I needed confirmation and turned back to camp. Ginger looked up in surprise. I thought you went out to hunt. I forgot about that, I answered. Come, I've found the most beautiful place in the world. Don't you want to eat first, she protested. You're so tired and you're seeing things. 
Reluctant and unbelieving, Ginger followed me. We soon stood together looking at the fairy-like landscape across the lagoon. Yes, she said, that's the place we've been dreaming of. We can make camp there during the rainy season and build a thatched hut among those palms. That sight should please even the port captain of Vallarta. The tortillas and scraps of dried fish tasted like ambrosia that night as, in our excitement, we talked with our mouths full. The lagoon was parallel to the sea, so in the morning we loaded the canoe and started down the coast to find an entrance from the ocean. When we discovered it shortly, we shot the breakers at its mouth and were soon in quiet waters. But the tide was going out. Since there was little point in fighting the current, we looked round for a temporary campsite.